this week, three sides of the coin, heads are exploding with this episode. The little bit of minutia we discover related to Kiss Alive is absolutely freaking amazing. That's yep. all I can say about it. You want to learn. Yeah, minutia. minutia. Three sides of the coin. Talking all things Kiss. I want to rock and roll all night. You're listening to Three Sides of the Coin. Heads exploding, you think, on that little... That littlest bit of minutia? I, would well, I think it, so. I, I, again, the, it's, it's the, not, the, as, as you said, Mark, it's not Bob Kulik playing all the guitars, doing solos. It's just little, little, very small punch-ins where you could probably never tell. But the fact that we learned this is pretty impressive. I'm going to go back. I want everyone to be crystal clear about this. That man was there. I wasn't. Yeah. So what am yeah. I going to tell him? He's wrong. Uh, I've never heard that. And the only reason I would cast doubt on it, again, I'm not. But the only reason if I was going to make a constructive argument, I would have said this. We've had Bob Kulik on. I've personally interviewed Bob Kulik. He's never mentioned it. Never once did he mention that. However, that doesn't mean that Bob didn't go in there and behind Strutter hit one chord. Didn't think and it left. Was worth, yeah. And, because- and, 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 and honestly, Mark, to, to your point you're making here, he may not have ever even realized it ended up on the album. Or even remembered because, like he said, it's true. Bob was a go-to guy. He was there all the time. Yeah, he's like, "Hey, I just need you to go dead it right here." Okay, done. Well, if you talk to a guitar player, well, I really didn't play. I just played two notes, and then I walked out. Yeah. I'm going to tell you, I know, I know people who I've been very blessed to know a lot of drummers and a lot of drummers that have done serious sessions. I know a couple drummers that went in and did, you know, some percussion on some pretty big records and stuff. And they don't get credit. The, 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 the producer will go, hey, you, you play drums. Can, can you come over here yeah. and can you play just go ding, tap? Ding, 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 ding. Yep. That's all I need. Okay. We're done. You know, you know what I mean? It's not credit. You don't think of it as yourself going. Yeah. yeah. You know, I'm in I, kiss I, I will, now. <laughs> Well, I will tell you, back uh, in, my, in my band through the 80s, we did a couple similar things that that KISS did because it was not uncommon. Um, I, 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 I remember doing background vocals for a couple different bands just because when they, they were finishing up, they're like, oh, Christ, we need. We're like, well, we're just sitting here. We can go yeah. rock and roll a couple times. It's not something you put on a resume. That's what I mean. It's like yep. Bob Kulik might not go. I went, eh, eh, you know, because they yep. needed that. But I don't, you know, you're not going to fucking talk about that. That's a, there's a total difference between doing a punch in, which is something like he's talking about someone who's a go to studio guy. I got, you know, unfortunately he's passed, but that was, uh, oh Christ. Cause that's who Ezra brought it. Um, oh, the guy, uh, Steve Hunter and uh, what the hell is his name? Oh, from 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 Alice Cooper. Yeah, Alice I Cooper's mean, band. 
yeah, you know, brought those guys in all Wait, the uh, uh, well, um, Dick Wagner. Uh, Dick Wagner. That, which who ended up playing again. Yeah. Put it this way. If it, it's, it's, it's common knowledge that Dick, Dick Wagner played on, on, on uh, Sweet Pain, did the solo. It would not have been uncommon for, for Bob Ezrin to go, hey, while you're here, could you put this chord behind Shout It Out Loud? Just hit it. Yeah. No, just hit a chord. That's the kind of thing before all this craziness goes on. Because when this airs, everyone's going to freak. And I know Mike, oh, everybody's going to be like, no way. He's not on that album. Yeah, it's like, yeah, no, yeah. he didn't. Re- as as Frankie himself said, it wasn't like he recorded a solo. It wasn't like he, a part of a solo. Just yeah. again, what did he punch say? In. A tag or a punch in one note. Yeah. Yes. One note. Good and luck again, finding again, it. Good luck finding there. it. He was there. I wasn't. None of our listeners. I could. I could say this with pretty good certainty. Not a single one of our listeners was there. Correct. Yeah. So, say what you want, but if you're going to doubt what the assistant engineer says, who was there, you better be able to step up with some proof that he's wrong. And again, like I said, I, I go back to people who, like Gene and Paul did, you know, we're going to sing a, a, a line on a on a record or do some oohs and ahs for 30 yep. seconds. Uh, uh, you know what? Somebody that I, I haven't bought the book yet, but I can't wait to, to get it is Holly Knight's book. Yes. Where she came and played all the freaking keyboards on Unmasked, uncredited. I, I, as, as a show. major league kiss nerd, I didn't know that till fairly recently. Until that just came out. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I didn't know that. And I tell you what, nobody else did either. This isn't, this isn't and, just common knowledge stuff. And, and, and here's what, at the end of the day, here's what it comes down to. You just learned that Bob Kulik might've played a note or two on kiss alive. Does that make kiss alive? a worse album now because you've learned that <laughs> will you stop listening to it is it not great anymore because you learned that i mean personally for me i will still listen to kiss alive 2 versus alive but because you're wrong but <laughs> <laughs> but you get my point it doesn't change anything about how great the album is and how much you love it exactly it just adds a little bit more data to yeah. to the, the to the the history of what happened here with the band. And I find that just absolutely fascinating. Here's a great, you know what? I'm going to step into Frankie's corner right here. When they were mixing that record and stuff, the guys were out on tour. If if Bob's local or whoever, Steve Hunter, somebody... If you're if you're the and you're gonna have someone like Eddie Kramer go to Frankie and go, can you get me a get? I need an A chord played. Just an A maybe, chord. Maybe Gene and Paul don't even know this. Yes, yeah, that, <laughs> Michael. That's exactly my point. That is exactly my point. They were out on tour yeah. when this was being mixed, and if they yep. they weren't gonna they weren't gonna delay producing the record because they're missing an A chord. They're gonna get someone. To play the punch and done, and you know yep. who's going to know about it? Nobody. Nobody, because it Cause probably was never. Be it was to... probably never recorded. They, you know, Bob might have done it 
comp. Oh, it's one note. I'm right here anyway. Just let me play it. Thanks. Good night. You know, there may literally be no record of this other than the memory of the people who were there. Come down, here's 50 bucks. I need you to hit two chords. Yeah. 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 Fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. I mean, that's the type of stuff I love discovering in a casual passing conversation. Wait, you know, wait a second. Bob Kulik on a live? Are There's you, a it, reason why I, 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 that's, I don't know if you caught it in the conversation. I'm like, well, when was the last record you worked on? Because yeah. if he would have said, you know, Dynasty, I would have went, okay, well, that kind of explains it. Maybe he was, he was very, confident that it was kiss alive all through this conversation that he worked on that album not kiss alive too. kiss alive also too that's how come he thought dress to kill was the second record because he yeah. wasn't the, the the second record was out west recorded on the west coast so he wasn't there so to him dress to kill was his second kiss record, kiss record which makes sense yeah figured it out yeah, all right, gents, just, let's wrap. Yeah, all right. So homework, people. I don't know what. What? Check out his music. Check, first of all, yes. Check out yeah. um, Frankie Eldorado. You may have to go to YouTube to give it a listen. And did your head explode when you learned about Bob Kulik? And what else did and you he, learn that you you know today? Because I mean, yeah, there was too. there was some great stories he shared about. John Lennon and Peter Frampton and, Peter and the Pan. Rolling Stones. And, you know, so what what fascinated you here? I mean, I thought it was all fascinating. I mean, and and listen, did we finally see Tommy go fanboy? Not to the standards Mark has gone, but I would say yes. A little bit. Tommy went fanboy there. I love Just that a little bit. So much. That, that's that's what Cheryl says. This. all right all right guys that's it three sides of the coin we are out of here until our next mind-blowing episode see you later subscribe on youtube follow and rate us on spotify subscribe and leave a review on itunes we appreciate your support. Three sides of the coin. We are really excited for this guest. We are joined today by Frankie D'Augusta. And Frankie, I'll, I'll let you kind of tell your backstory, but just so KISS fans have a little idea, we're going to go all the way back to Wicked Lester, and we're going to start there. Okay. And, I mean, Mark, Tommy... Correct me if I'm wrong. Have we had anybody on the show in over 10 years that goes all the way back to Wicked Lester? Close, but no cigar. No yeah, problem. close. We've mm-hmm. had people that go all the way back to the like Lynn first, Christopher. The first Lynn shows Christopher, of Kiss. Yes. Yeah, we yes. know we've had Lynn Christopher on. Yes. But but Frankie, you worked with Wicked Lester, right? Well, actually, I'm this is how it went down. I got there in 73. So when Wicked Lester was already done with their, their demo, okay? That was done, I think they finished it in 72. Then they went on to get a deal with Epic for not Dressed to Kill, but the album before that. So I got there actually after Wicked Lester was done, but Kiss was basically, um, I wouldn't say the house band 
uh, but they were there a lot. I mean, um, uh, and they're meaning meaning the studio, Electric, Electric Lady? Lady. Yes, Electric Lady Studios in New York. Um, they were there a lot. I mean, they were uh, not a fixture, but they were in and out. And and there's a funny story about that. How it, it all evolved. Um, a guy named Ron Johnson. I don't know if you ever heard this name. Oh yep. yep. Okay, Ron. This is the story. There was a, a, a maintenance, technical maintenance guy who would handle the equipment. His name was Shimon Ron. This is connection to Electric Lady somehow was supposed to evolve from Shimon Ron. They went to the door and Ron Johnson answered and he let them in. And the two Rons always got a little confused. Up. And Ron, of course, uh, loved what he heard and they went on to record the, the Wicked Lester material, Too Many Mondays. Um, I don't think they had any of the later tunes on there, except for maybe Shout It Out Loud, but it was called Shout Too Loud or something like that, on the original Wicked Lester demos. And those particular demos were the things that us guys coming in would practice mixing on. And then I'd say in about 1973, Kiss had a record deal at that point. I think they they were on Epic. That was their well. So 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 Wicked Lester had the deal with Epic yeah. that they that they got out of because they didn't they like out. Wicked Lester. And then they got as Kiss a deal with Casablanca. Well, that well that was later. They then went on to I think it was Dressed to Kill on no, no 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 no. Mm -hmm. they, they, they 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 Kiss did audition for Epic. Right. And Epic passed on the band Kiss. Right. It was it was Neil Bogart and Casablanca right. who That's signed right. Kiss and did the debut album and everything. Well, hold on, Michael. Michael, this may be they briefly were associated with Warner Brothers, right? Well, when the first record came. Out. When when yes, because Casablanca was distributed by Warner Brothers. Okay. For like Kiss's first album. Right. And then the story goes, Warner Brothers hated Kiss, wanted the makeup removed. Everybody said no. And then Warner Brothers basically said, well, we're not distributing Casablanca anymore. Right, right, right. Exactly. So so so, so let's back up a little bit, because we've okay. heard some some stories about how Gene and Paul would always hang around Electric Lady, yeah. open to meet people, open Absolutely. to do stuff. That's the confusing and, and, story about the Ron, Shimon Ron. And Ron Johnson, they were there to see Shimon Ron, but Ron happened to answer the door. He was he was the chief engineer and, and manager at the time of the studio, and he opened the door for Kiss to them to come down. They met, and uh, the two Rons got mixed up, so to speak. So let me let me ask you if you, and, you know, and you may not know much about this because it was more related to Ron Johnson, but my understanding was. Kiss were like basically volunteering to do anything they could in the studio. Allah, we before we hit the record button, Lynn Christopher, they sang background vocals on a Lynn Christopher album. And my understanding was in lieu of payment, they were basically like, Ron Johnson, will you produce our demos for us instead of paying us to do all of this stuff we are doing on other albums? Does that ring a bell? It does ring a bell, and I would say that was the sentiment of the studio and the sentiment of the late, great Ron Johnson. He was a mentor of mine, and uh, 
I would say that would be more true than false. So, and, so kiss, kiss were a kiss, and and by that, probably Gene and Paul more than Gene, Paul, Ace, and Peter yes. were constantly looking for things to do at Electric Lady to get their foot in the door is basically what it sounds like. I I believe that is the story. As a, bun a, bu a bunch of kids that were hanger-ons, basically. <laughs> yes, I, I honestly believe that is the story because that's how a lot of us started. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I, I worked at two studios before I worked at Electric Lady. I worked at Record Plant in New York. And I worked at a place called National, which was a, a jingle house. We used to do Madison Avenue, big orchestra, Budweiser commercials and stuff. But I literally stood outside the door to meet somebody that came out of Electric Lady so I can get a connection. That's how I got the gig. So when you got in and started working at Electric Lady, what was your, what was your in, initial role at Electric Lady? I got a, I got started as an assistant engineer because I had come from two previous studios and I had some experience. So I got thrown in as an assistant. Whereas at Record Plant, the previous studio, I was called a general, which would be a general anything, coffee. Do anything, empty yeah. the garbage and, and help. If somebody, somebody vomited somewhere, you gotta go do it, okay? Yeah, exactly, exactly. But we didn't, you know, it was cool. Everything was cool. When I got to a record plant, they were doing Edgar Winnershock treatment. Uh, I met John Lennon on Walls and Bridges. I got a special thanks. Uh, Jimmy, wow. Iovine, Jimmy Iovine was working there. I got to spend some time with John and May Pang up at John's place. He was living on, I think it was Beekman Place in Manhattan. He had some kind of penthouse on like 50-something street in the river. Okay, Frankie, I got to stop you because I'm a Beatles yeah. fan. We all are. All right. Tell me what. Tell me just a couple stories about John Lennon. Like, what was he like? Well, I'll tell you. I musically speaking, I mean, I this this is how it worked with John. I I was working at a record plant as a general, and John said to the the owner of the studio, Roy Sacala, I need somebody to help me set up my stereo system, and Roy sent me with John. Mm. for like a day to go over and set up his system and try to, you know, get it going with him. We ended up spending over a week together. Okay. Wow. Go back and report there every day to John's place. And he was living with May Pang at the time. And um, I'll tell you the truth. The weirdest thing is we never spoke about music and he was, he was really down to earth. I got to tell you, I, I never acknowledged him as a Beatle. I, in fact, I didn't do that with any artist I ever worked with. I didn't go. I didn't go on that level. Maybe which is why you was, spent a week with them. What's that? That's that's probably why you ended up. Spending oh, absolutely! A week with them. I had no interest in talking about anything. You, that you didn't go fanboy on him. No, I didn't go fanboy on anybody. <laughs> not on anybody because not only did I didn't go fanboy, I was like 18 years old at the time. Okay, and I just. I was hard to impress. Let's put it that way. But John, his humanity impressed me just uh, by speaking and, and uh, general things, uh, you know, not, not, nothing musical. And we never did speak anything musical. And I would see, in fact, I saw him all the way up till the day he was doing Double Fantasy with Jack Douglas at the Hit Factory because I worked there while I was doing my album. On, I was a recording artist on Epic while he was oh, doing nice. Double Fantasy. And uh, 
I mean, I saw him all those years later, and he was still the way who he was. He was he was a, a, a down to earth guy. And um, I'll put a little tidbit in there that I I saw John Lennon's killer before he shot John Lennon. He he was stalking he was stalking John Lennon outside of the studio on 48th Street in Manhattan. I don't think many people know that. I don't the think same day people. or just like a week. Now, now it was it was probably a couple of weeks before he actually got killed. You know, he was he was like a. I thought he was a homeless guy. He had a wagon and um, hanging out in the lobby. We didn't have any security. This was like the uh, up, up, not the Upper West Side, but the West Side of like Hell's Kitchen, a rough mm-hmm. and tumble neighborhood. So if someone was in the lobby, we didn't really take it too seriously. Right. And you know that was the way it was. But I did recognize uh, Chapman later on after I found that he killed. Um, John Lennon and I have I have actually on, on I have a photo of John Lennon's last night uh, in the studio because a good friend of mine who passed away Sam Ginsworth he, he worked with Jack Douglas on Aerosmith the Draw the Line and Rocks and Cheap Trick a lot of albums he told me the night of John's death there was a decision that after the session they were going to either go out to eat or stop back at the Dakota. John John had to pick up something. Whether I'm not sure what it was, but uh, that was the deciding decision that you know changed his fate, so to speak. And uh, it was just like like that. Okay, okay, let's go to instead of go eat, let's stop at the house first. I got to pick up something, then we'll go eat. That's simple, like any of us would do. And of course, that's what happened. But I suppose also if, if he'd been stalking him like that for a while, if you, if they would have just gone to dinner, he would have got him another time. Most likely. I you know, most because like likely. you said, he was he was a down-to-earth guy because, it, look, the Beatles, and maybe the Beatles weren't as big in 73 because the it hadn't grown to the levels it is now and affected so many more generations. Right. But for me, as a, as a teenager, seeing that he was killed, I was just like, I, I couldn't, I couldn't grasp the idea that someone could get to him because I yeah. didn't know what new, I'd never been to New York. I didn't know what it was like. I didn't know that you'd see, you know, I've seen a bunch of, of celebrities in oh, New absolutely. York City. Just you never know. Yeah. You just, I, I didn't, so I couldn't even grasp the concept at the time. Yeah. I don't think many people could. I mean, you no. know, I don't, I, I don't mean this in the literal sense, but back then things were just much yeah. more innocent. I mean, to your point, Frankie, you didn't have security at the studio. People no, just didn't. came in. I mean, it was a different time. Nobody thought Nobody. that could even happen. To we didn't even point. conceive that that could happen. And there was more than John Lennon at the Hit Factory. There was everybody there one time or another. But there's an old saying, if one person sets out to get you, you're gotten. Yeah. It might not be today. It could be tomorrow, like you said. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's pretty much all, the point. The he would have eventually probably got him. Yeah, look at all the different people, presidents and whatnot that have been assassinated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, did we ever think John Lennon would? I never thought because I always saw him as a positive force that brought so much joy and enlightenment to to our world and our youth. Mm-hmm. And uh, I almost feel like the the reason why we're failing is because there is no more Beatle music. Okay, we just don't have that joy in our world anymore. And that's just my feeling about what the Beatles brought to my youth. 
Well, Frank, I also Frank, think. Yes. I also I think gonna, that what's changed. Go, go, are you sure? Go ahead, Tommy. Go ahead. What's changed is look at how things are now versus then. When I was a kid growing up in Minneapolis, a record would come out. I don't care if it was, a, you know, Elton John or Kiss or whoever. And you'd sit for hours and read the liner notes oh, and you'd yeah. absorb yourself into the music. Now the young kids today, there's so much media coming at them on their oh phones and everything else that even with the good music, it gets lost. It gets lost. And you know what? All this work to hear something over a phone, give me a break. I'm working in a $2 million studio and you're going to listen to this over the phone. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Every, 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 everybody's like, yeah, it, you know, an incredible studio an incredible board, yeah. incredible gear. Everything. It gets mixed here and yeah. you end up listening to it in little white earbuds. That's right. That's right. What a disgrace on a, on a, what is it? An a MPEG or it's a MP3. MP3. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like a joke to me. I mean, especially being into studios and high fidelity. And uh, I'm not saying everybody has to have a, a great stereo system, but when I was a kid, I had a Lafayette system, home built. We, cool we all did as we were all, yeah. all kids. Well, again, to Tommy's point, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're all in our mid fifties, the mm -hmm. three of us. When we were kids growing up, there was no internet. There were no right. video games. No. Nope. Uh, you you basically had music, real books, and movies because you That's had three TV channels. That's right. And and you know so you know music was the activity itself. That's it what you got. To, it was a primary activity. Yeah, you and your friends would get together That's and right. listen to a new album together. You'd go buy it together. You'd go stand in line to buy concert tickets together. You'd go to the concert together. All of it. All that, of the that, above. So, so, you know, yeah, think to, obviously times have changed a lot. Music is a lot more to compete against, um, you know, and, and, you know, I don't want us to all sit here and sound like, you know, a bunch of old men on, complaining old about man on, on the porch yelling, <laughs> kids, get off my freaking lawn. But well, I got let me tell you, I got almost 20 years on you. Yeah, well, I don't I mean, I don't see anything getting any better as far as that goes. No, it's it's never going to go back, you no. know, and, and we always say this on our show. Nor should, we, talk, nor should we, 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 we talk about historical uh, events. Mm -hmm. Timeline means everything. Right. You know, the 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 18 year old kid or younger who's listening to this show. And believe me, Frankie, we have kids listen, uh -huh. have no idea what we're talking about. None. I've got a nine year old daughter. Wow. She has no clue right. about buying music, going to concerts. It, really? you know, yeah. We, yeah. We, yeah. We, we can talk about it all we want. All I think we can do in this day and age is do the best we can to make sure people are at least exposed to music. Exposed to it. And listen to it. Yes. Listen to it. Understand how it evolved and how it came to be. Uh, like now, where it came from, where it started. where Exactly. It, the history of it. The history of it. You know, Frankie, before we, we move on to 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 your history with kiss and stuff i got one question so mm -hmm. after that ha after john lennon's murder mm -hmm. did you instantly see things change in the studios meaning it's being locked down security's in place yes. we are we are now being more aware of who's hanging out 
Because oh, we, we, all, we all know fans who, you know, even through the 80s and 90s, their favorite band, they'd go sit on the corner and hang out outside of a studio in hopes of meeting their favorite artist. Yeah. Did things change? Things changed. Yeah, things changed. Well, first of all, we were the Hit Factory was on, uh, like I said, uh, between 8th and 9th in New York. I don't know if you've ever been to New York, but in the 70s, New York was really crime ridden. I mean, I um, I used to what makes you do a good job in the studio is you're afraid when you leave, you're going to get killed. So uh, you want for posterity reasons, you want to make sure you, you did a good job. But that's the kind of neighborhood it was. Yeah. And uh, yeah, security, security was uh, heightened at that point. Everyone was paranoid. You were paranoid. No one wanted to get shot and bring joy into the world. Right. Well, and, and if any of you guys are not familiar with what he's talking about, just watch the movie Taxi Driver and you'll see all of those scenes of, of 42nd Street and the city and all of that yes. sort of thing. Perfect example. Perfect. So so back to Gene, Paul, Ron Johnson, Electric Lady, were you when you started at Electric Lady, were you working mainly with Ron? Were you working with any any producer that was there that needed you? Or were you kind of assigned one person to be your mentor? No, I was working with multiple people because that's just how it worked then. Uh, you had the girls up in the office who did the assignments. And you had certain guys like Michael Frondelli. I want to give a shout out to Michael. Thank you, Michael, for connecting us. Yes, he connected us. And Michael has been a longtime friend, an electric lady alumni. Yep. Great producer, great engineer. Great and human being. Great human being. Always loved Michael. And yep. we still talk to this day. And uh, shout out to Michael, uh, Jerry Solomon, Bernie, Bernie Kirsch, a lot of different people. But um, the, uh, what was the question? I forgot it. <laughs> well, it, it was, it was, were you assigned to anybody or did you work with any producer that needed an assistant engineer? How did I you, worked with how any, was it working it, for you? It worked over there that you were assigned different projects. Okay. Cause electric lady only had two rooms, but these two rooms would go 24 hours a day. One band would come in, one band would go out. You would get assigned. Um, like I got assigned to the kiss, to the first two kiss albums and the live album with Eddie Kramer and I had to leave the live album to go do either, I don't know, Patty Smith, maybe horses, or it might've been, I don't know, Ian Hunter or Frampton comes alive. I don't know what album I got pulled. I was working on the live album and I also worked on the two, the, the Epic album and the one after that, which I think was dressed to kill. And we were assigned to that. There was multiple guys doing that though. Michael, Neil Tiemann, myself, Ron would be engineering sometimes. So it, it was a it was a rotation thing until you would really establish yourself as an assistant and people would request you and you would be solely working with them for a while. Until you people meaning the artist or a producer? Yeah, it could be both. It could be the artist, producer, or engineer. There were house engineers and there were... No, I wouldn't say house producers, but uh, there were producers who had people that they liked to work with, and artists had people like to work with. When I worked with Peter Frampton on uh, not the live album, but the, the next album, I'm and You, they requested me because I did a great job on the live album. So it all depends. You could fall into that a couple of different ways. 
Or if the girl in the office thought that was right for you or she liked you as a person, she'd assign you to it. Like when they put me on Frampton Comes Alive, she goes, you know, Frankie, this is a lady named Gail. She worked up in the office. She goes, I know you love the rock and roll thing. And we got this uh, guy, Peter Frampton, coming. This is before the live album. And I said, Peter Frampton, sounds familiar. She goes, Humble Pie. I said, oh, okay. Great. She assigns me to that album. So I work on it. It's a bunch of other guys that worked on it too. And, uh, but I maintained a really good relationship with that. And um, I happened to get mugged on, uh, right after we finished Do You Feel Like We Do, we were mixing. And I left the studios about quarter to two in the morning. And I went over to Sixth Avenue, it was a Nathan's there. And when I came back, I got, I got jumped. I got, I got strangled and robbed and I had to go off with the cops and the whole thing. Ugh. Yeah, they had to drive me around, try to identify these people. I didn't even see them. They put a pair of nunchucks around my neck with piano wire. <laughs> so that was that. But, um, you know, artists can... And then later later on, uh, she says to me, Peter Frampton's coming back. He's doing another album. And he requested you. And him and the engineer, which is Chris Kimsey, producer of the Rolling Stones and a lot of other projects. He requested me. They both requested me. So I did the whole I'm and You album. I, then I went on tour with Peter, and then I went to do the movie in L.A. Let, one, one of the things I've all, you know, they always say, music is one of the greatest triggers of memories to mm -hmm. people. You know, you hear, you hear a first note of a song, and it brings you back to some moment in your past. Right. Somebody like you who's been assistant engineer engineer working with all these artists when you hear those albums now what is brought back to you are you brought back to yeah oh yeah the studio the room the moment i mean i i, I got to imagine it's different than what us fans experience because us fans will often experience the first time we heard that song on the radio or the first time we saw that yeah. band in concert you're going to have different memory trips and memories. I'm going to have more like a real time things that I was involved in at the time when that was going on. Like when I hear, do you feel like we do on the radio? I remember I got mugged when I hear <laughs> something, <laughs> you know, I, when I hear something else that I worked on, I remember the girl I was going or I remember a particular situation. So it definitely is a, a, a mark in time, a timestamp, so to speak. And uh, I would say that's, that's each, that's, I don't know how fans take it today because, but at being in the field, yeah, it brings me back to a time and place. Electric Lady was in the East Village in New York, another rough and tumble neighborhood. Okay. Yeah, I've been there. Yeah. So if it, it's not that way today as much as it was in the 70s. The 70s, if you, walked a little bit out of the way you would you were getting punched out okay back then it was a little dangerous at four o'clock in the morning a lot of these sessions would uh you know end four or five three four or five in the morning and uh i had a decision to make am i gonna go upstairs and sleep upstairs or am i gonna go head out to staten island where i live most of the time i stayed at the studio <laughs> and we had a place to stay uh ron johnson actually had an apartment there but before ron um, Jimi Hendrix's manager, Michael Jeffries, he had an apartment at Electric Lady, and that's where I stayed, and that's where Ron stayed. And then when Ron left, 
I stayed there for a while because I couldn't take the traveling late at night. And I was, quite frankly, a little afraid. <laughs> so I, uh, I, mean, I wasn't about to carry a weapon or anything. So I, I just said, let me stay at the studio. I'll just, they had a shower there. Electric Lady was the sweetest studio. I mean, I'd been to studios in LA, been to Record Plant, they bring, been to a lot of different places. Electric Lady was the bomb. That's all I could say. Let's 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 back up to so you you kind of get first introduced to Gene and Paul as they're they're hanging around Electric Lady. What was your do you remember a first initial impression of those two guys? Well, I didn't really meet them when they were the hanger ons. They already had a deal and I was an assistant engineer in one of their sessions when I met them. Okay, so 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 let let's 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 talk about the debut Kiss album. Yes. You you you're you're an assistant engineer. Yes. What was your impression? Did you know of the band at that time? Did they have enough of a name in New York City that you'd heard of them? Were you aware of the makeup? Were what was your 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 very first, if you can remember, what was that first reaction you had when they said? Oh, you're going you're gonna to be working the KISS project. Okay, my first reaction was I already kind of knew them because when you got to Electric Lady, uh, the Wicked Lester tapes happened to be the tapes that a lot of us assistants practiced mixing on. So those were the, those were the tapes. That was, that was the first tape I ever mixed was the Wicked Lester demo. Album. Album, which is, whatever. Uh, and that's what I know them. But... I, I, I tell you the truth, I really didn't know them. At that point, I was involved in doing sessions all day, all night. I didn't listen to them. I didn't know who anybody was. I didn't even know Frampton had a, a hit album until the next album. I, I mean, I just didn't go home and listen to the radio. Um, so I had no idea who they were. I just knew that Ron was involved with them and he has he had some of the publishing and it was back and forth with the lawyers and uh no I had no impressions of them I just took them for who they were I wasn't they didn't come in with makeup so I wasn't aware of that right so ba- ba- basically and 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 this is what fans have a hard time understanding mm-hmm. you weren't a you weren't a fan it was just a job you were given and you were working with these guys that happened to end up exploding and lasting 50 years it's not like you were like oh my god it's kiss it's kiss i'm working with you you were like it it, it could be kiss it could be it could be Jimi hendrix it could be anybody it didn't matter to you didn't matter to me i had a job to do and i had certain things that i had to do as an assistant which was to map out the song Map it out. You look at the reader. Uh, you know the time, the uh, on on the recording devices. You you map out the song: verse, chorus, intro, guitar solo. That was my job. Take care of the punch-ins. You know, not all the time. Some engineers did it on their own. But the assistant, his job was to take care of the client and the machine. Make sure you have tape and make sure everybody was happy. Okay. But my job as as an assistant engineer was mapping out the song, knowing when I needed to punch in. If I heard something wrong, I could either tap the engineer or he would tell me, we're gonna go in over here. I go back to the number, we're gonna punch in on the second verse. And then we're gonna punch out after this line. In out, in out. But back in those days, 
we had Ampex machines were, they were very big machines and they were bulky. When you, it wasn't like this very like quick click punching kind of thing. It wasn't punching a button on a computer. Yeah, it was like, you had to put your whole body into this thing, man. It was like, I swear to God, the MM1000 was like, boom, you know, you had to really, really hit it. But that, that was an assistant engineer's job along with, Hey man, the guy wants to launch, go, whatever you had to do. It was a combination of a lot of things. And at the end of the night, I was the guy who signed the work orders. I would sign them out. Engineer would leave, bands packing up, whatever. I was the guy who could say, you know what? We had a technical problem with one of the uh, compressors or equalizers. I'm going to take off two hours for you. And I, I throw everybody a break. And I don't know if that added to my success, but everybody got a break with me. That's just the way it was. How I do business, man. What, you know, I'm sure over your career and all the artists you've worked with, there's some of them that were pleasures to work with, that were professionals. Even though they might have been kids and new to this, they were professional they did what they needed to do. They listened, they worked. And then you probably had artists who, you know, didn't do anything right, were just terrible and difficult to work with. Is, is that true? Can you expand on that a bit? I would say, I would say in any human experience, you're going to have that no matter where you go, you know, um, it, it, Usually in a, in, in a band situation, there's one or two guys who are kind of taking control and keeping an eye on things and making sure everything's going down right. And the rest, some of the guys, either they will leave or they won't be involved in it. Um, there's, you know, there's always, I, I've never really um, had a bad experience with people in the studio because there, we had a certain job to do. We were on the clock. Okay, there wasn't a lot of time. These were uh, mostly signed bands who had a commitment to a label and they had to come in on the budget or about a budget. So there was it was really a pretty professional deal. By the time they reached electric lady level, you know, um, were they assholes maybe outside? Probably, but they weren't going to show it in there because they knew that we knew that, you know, what they were and, up to and, and and was it the producer's role to keep things in order if they started to get out of order? I mean, was the producer the guy who would crack the whip if, if the band be. was not not really it, focused or getting the job done? Yeah, it should it should be, and that is the produ- that is a producer's role, in my opinion, it, along with uh, the material, uh, musical parts, uh, arrangements, and all of that. Along, along with the autistic side, but sometimes a band member will take that role and has more of a command over the band than the producer. But the producer brings his own stuff to the table as far as arrangements, what musicians he might want to bring in. Sometimes they don't want to use a drummer like Peter Chris on something and they might bring in somebody else. They may bring in Bob Kulik to do guitar overdubs on the live album. It wasn't as live as she thought. Uh, but I'm not bad mouthing kids, but that's a fact. No, no, that that's a fact. I yeah. mean, every artist has mm-hmm. what you want to call ghost musicians, studio yeah. musicians, Absolutely. because 
you know, we, we always say on the podcast here to us personally, at the end of the day, it's the song that matters. It's got to be a great song. Right. And if to make that song great, you bring Bob Kulik in instead of Ace Fraley or, right. or, or, you know, any of the other people that might come in and out for any well, band. For an example, the first Kiss album, I don't, Peter Chris, I don't even think was drumming on, on that album. Yeah, yeah, he did. He played on the He did? Didn't he? Yeah. Okay, well, I, the thing is, I was never involved in the basic tracks for that, for Kiss. I was always involved in the overdub sessions, vocals, background vocals, whatever, guitars. I was working with Eddie Kramer, we were doing guitars and audience loops, which, um, we would take a loop of tape of audience. There wasn't much audience on those tapes with the Kiss Live album. And we'd string it and we'd loop it together and we'd run it through three or four machines across the room and we'd keep it in a constant loop. So it sounded like it was a really big crowd there. And we put a digital delay on it and it sounded like you had a big crowd. Mm -hmm. So there were- Now, do you, do, you, do you recall what the source was for that audience crowd noise because the rumors are it was like an nfl football game it could have been but it sounded like the crowd that was at one of their shows i mean we just had a we just had to get it going when we needed it and get it constantly and get it bigger from what i believe okay. i don't think at the time they could have pulled anything or sampled anything because we just didn't have the technology of like they do today of sampling anything you want to sample we'd actually have to go out and record something and then bring it back and, and fly it in manually vis-a-vis -vis a machine, hit play, sync it up to the multi-track and make sure you get it right. So it was, I, I do believe it was the crowd they had, but it wasn't a, as big of a crowd as they needed. You, to you, had, you had to enhance the crowd noise that they the did crowd. record. Yes, we had to enhance the crowd with, a loop, like I said, it's the audio track of the audience. And we had to take that and make it bigger and extend it further. Because not everybody's going crazy at every time in the song. So the ones we needed to enhance, we enhanced. So, so Frankie, tr try, trying to get your timeline with KISS together. Right. So you're involved with Wicked Lester. And then you well, said you did. I, mean, I come in after Wicked Lester. I come in okay. a year after. All right, so you so you so you did work on the first Kiss record. That's just yes. called first Kiss. and second and the live album. Well, the, no, there's three before the live record. Three, there's three. Okay, it was there's uh, there's, there's Kiss, Hotter right. Than Hell, which right. was done out west, and then there was uh, Dress to Kill was third. It was third? Okay. Yes, and then and then the the live record. Live, okay, so I was the, the only thing they did for Epic. That's what Wicked Lester was. Everything else was on yeah. Casablanca. Okay, so the two that were on Casablanca, I was an assistant on. On that'd be three. On three. Well, okay. no, I, yeah. I guess what Frank, Frankie, what you're saying is, you were on the debut Kiss record. You were on right. Dress to Kill. Dress to Kill, and probably, then the probably not the second album, Hotter Than Hell, because that, that was recorded that in the West Coast. That was yeah. that was on the West. Absolutely. Coast. You're right. I was not on that. I was on the ones you just mentioned. And I was just trying to help you with your timeline. I yeah. knew I, in my head, I'm like, that's why he missed that one. Because I had to go look at my tax returns because I didn't remember when I started. Well, they, I, I, they, I totally they, I totally get it. I mean, they did God, records I'm, in 74. That's why. Yeah. 
you, I mean, you know yeah, I mean? I mean, they were they were they were recording like a new album every six months, you know, and God, you know, I can't remember what I had for lunch yesterday, let alone what what was I my job doing 45 years ago? <laughs> I pulled out my 1040s yesterday to see when I started them. I still have them. And wow. uh, yeah, from 73. So did you did you do anything after Kiss Alive with Kiss? Uh, after Kiss Alive, no. No, I moved on to uh, um, either Patty's. I, I forget. It was either Patty Smith or uh, Frampton Comes Alive. I think it was Frampton Comes Alive. Uh, the because they were still hot and heavy working, uh, you know, with Eddie Kramer then. Yeah, I didn't. Know? I didn't. I did other projects with Eddie, uh, but not not the Kiss stuff because I, like I said, I moved on to uh, the Frampton stuff or the Patty Smith horses. <laughs> It's well, you did remember. pretty well. Hey, I, got, I just got a. I just got. I said you did pretty well. I got. A, I got a, a question because yes. I'm. I love Peter Frampton. Um, now, when you do work with like on an album like uh, on you know Frampton Comes Alive, one of the biggest albums of all time. Right. Do you like that? Was just an hourly job for you, right? You got zero re residuals for your work, or did, yeah, I never got residuals. I got a nice paycheck for the time. I mean, um, when I became yeah, I, was, I mean, it's not like it wasn't a work. I was into it. I mean, I would have did it for free, okay? I loved it. I loved every minute of it. I uh, I mean, in fact, I found out later on in life that you have to have a balance in life. You can't just do this and, and nothing else. I mean, you got to have a family balance. And I learned things later on in life. My whole life was spent my, from 17 years old well into my 50s working in and out of studios and living that kind of life and it wasn't a good balance for me but um yeah i went on to frampton then i'm in you uh then like i said the tour but there were other projects in between i want to show you one thing which you may like i got signed to epic let's see if we can get it in there i got hey. signed to two album deal on epic Frankie El Dorado i've seen that i've seen that cover before frankie yeah that's my cover Yes, I've but seen that before. 1980, I got signed to a two-album deal on Epic. Cool. As, as a recording artist. And, uh, you know, you just, the Frampton trip was unbelievable. I mean, I've never kind of experienced anything like that in my life. The American, uh, North American tour was phenomenal. Well, I, let, let, let's, let's spend a little time talking about Peter Frampton. I mean, to Mark's point, that live album change change the whole concept of live albums for yeah. artists i mean well, prior before, to that before we jump there michael there's a big similarity um between peter frampton's frampton comes alive and kiss alive yes both bands released a few studio records absolutely prior and they were not big sellers no it, were it, absolutely Yes, absolutely. So th those records are very similar in that way. And the trajectory, the, yes. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and and and, and uh, is it fair to say prior to those two live albums, live albums were basically looked at as throwaways for labels and artists. It wasn't it wasn't a they'd never counted on a live album to be much well, at that point that, in time. You know what? I hear that a lot, Michael, but that's not necessarily true. Well, I'll because tell you something you, when you speak. I'll tell you after you speak. I make because, because I'll give you a couple key examples. And this is prior to Kiss Alive. Um, 
Deep Purple's made in Japan right. did, did crazy numbers. Um, the live Humble Pie record. There you go. D'Anthony you know, was Peter's manager. Yeah, yeah. They followed so, the same formula. Yes, yes. And also, and a minor thing, that you had bands that toured heavily and were big concert attractions. Black Oak, Arkansas is a great example. Their live album went gold. I mean, this was a band that didn't sell a ton of studio records, but they were on the road so much. They're like, matter of fact, with, with, with the Black Oak record, right. their, their management team, they were going to put them in. And because if, if anyone's familiar with, by the way, I highly recommend the, uh, Raunch and Roll Live records, one of my all-time favorites. But uh, some of those songs, they were supposed to go into the studio and they're like, you know what? Why bother? We're just going to record them live and 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 right. put it out. Sure. And, and, and sure enough, it worked because, you know, people wanted... Live music was starting to become such a huge, you know, deal that, that like I said, live records like that. And then Kiss really kind of, kick the wall down and after that you had you know uh that whole era of live records because those are some of my favorite records of all time from live bullet from bob seger just i i cannot recommend yeah, yeah. you yeah, know yeah, those, yeah. those records no, i know i know no. that but that but is, isn't, it, isn't it just started it, it just started the momentum yeah, there I, I, you know? mark i think i think the way you phrased it is is better than what i was trying to convey like Kiss Alive, Frampton Comes Alive, they kicked down the door, the wall for live albums. They, they, they brought it to a whole All other level. level. All the numbers level. They had, they'd never saw numbers like that before. I don't know so much about the Kiss. I didn't know, but I know with Frampton, it, it broke records at the time. It changed the whole model of the record business and how things were supposed to be looked at in the record business because of the numbers well because it wasn't back at the time too frankie like they they were kind of uh, on live records before frampton well the thing with, the thing with frampton was uh, he was managed by d anthony now d anthony managed humble pie humble pie uh when they did live at the Fillmore, that was one of their most successful records to, mm -hmm. to that at that point Right. So D. Anthony basically followed the same formula because Frampton had like four albums before that. And the one previous to the live album actually went gold. So there was some momentum and buildup and his live shows were really great. So when they decided to do the live record, we had a point where Jerry Moss, the M and A&M records came into the studio. We were all right, waiting for Jerry. He's going to come and listen. We're excited and blah, blah, blah. Put it on the record. He goes, where's the rest of the record? And we're like, the rest of the record? There's a whole nother side of the record. Peter thought it was going to be a single album. Jerry goes, I want, I want, I want 12. I want double album. And he had the whole thing. He, he knew exactly what he wanted. And we proceeded to, to go on and mix the other stuff. And it became the live double album that it became. You know, another great, especially you being a New Yorker, Bloister cults on your feet or on your knees was another good matter of fact that was a at the time that went gold i think that was 1975 as well okay. my point okay. is these bands that were road warriors right you know i and again i still think in the back of their heads meaning kisses 
number one, the, the live record made sense. And, and, and as a lot of Kiss fans know, that was half-assed based on the Slade Alive record that, you know, came out over in England. Gene was a fan of that. It, right. They wanted to capture what they weren't capturing in the studio. They captured it live, um, the energy of their shows. And a lot of these other bands from Blue Oyster Cult on down, that's, and again, the, the a classic example is the Humble Pie one. Yes. That stuff is so much heavier and more rocking. You know, when you've got Steve Marriott at his, oh, yeah. at his draw. And by the way, for you younger fans, that's, that's who Paul Stanley is trying to emulate with all the, you know, the, well, no, he's right. trying to be Steve Marriott. And I tell Probably. you, I talked to Paul about that. Paul's like guilty. You know, he loves Steve Marriott. Of course. Um, matter of, of course. fact, I got a picture of me with Paul. I was wearing a humble pie t-shirt. We yeah. spent that five minutes just talking. Paul said he was at the. Uh, no more. It, no, no, no. He was when they were mixing it. Oh, when they were mixing it. That okay. was, now, that was before Kiss. He just happened okay. to to be to be there. He goes, you know, just crazy occurrence. I happened to be there and when they were mixing. I could hear it. He goes, I was a big fan sure. uh, of, of that. And obviously that's before Kiss. But yes. that was a cool story that you shared with me. Um, but again, you know, all that you go back and look at those bands who were playing the film more and playing, right. you know, that's the reason they, they those records were stopgaps in some sense. Yes. But they were also successful. I mean, they were selling product and the fans loved it. And so many bands, uh, just like Kiss is the classic example. They are just better live. They, they just always have been. And well, Gene had, Gene had, I guess, Gene and Paul, but I, I, I noticed this from Gene as a statement he made in one of his interviews. They wanted, to, he wanted to be the band they always wanted to see on stage and they wanted right. to make themselves that band. And they succeeded to do that. And that's through watching other people and imagining what you could do with your own thing. And that's what they always wanted to do, be the band they never saw. Did you, Frank, ask, oh, uh, did you ever ask Peter Frampton what the hell he was thinking when he made that movie with the Bee Gees? Well, I was out there. I was living with him. We were living in Bel Air uh, in Maureen O'Hara's mansion. Uh, and I. this is after coming off the, the tour. Uh, the tour was maybe like four months. And I went down to MGM. I think he was doing it at MGM. I'm not sure. I went down there a couple of times. and. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I I couldn't make sense of any of it, and I stayed away from this. I stayed away from. The movie. I stayed with him till the very end of the movie, to the premiere, and I left. I went back home. In fact, I got I got fired after the movie. Okay, because he wanted me to come up to Austin to help build out his studio that he's going to put in his house, and I said to him, "Listen, I'm going back to New York. I'm I'm going to become staff at the Hit Factory." That's exactly what I did. And that's when I got my deal and everything else. I wasn't going to be stuck up in Austin. So I found him somebody in L.A. that was going to go back to New York with him and, and do whatever they did. I don't know whatever became of it, but I know that, um, you know, he wasn't up in Austin too long because the, apparently the, something happened with the house, something he either had termites or some bad kind of thing happened to it. And, of course, he had his problem with with his girlfriend it was the new york state's first palimony suit that peter frampton won 
It was the first alimony suit ever in the state, and she lost. Well, I just know it's a very big hot button for him, and apparently, if you mention it, he gets really pissed off about it because oh, I think yeah. he was sold a bill of goods about that. Well, well you should read his book. I've read it. He, I'm in the book. He, I'm in the book. He did get okay. mentioned. When that we, was a great book. Great read. Yeah. He, uh, we did. Uh, what did we do? I did the night at Peter's birthday. Uh, Stevie Wonder came in, and. Mick Jagger came in and we were doing overdubs with vocals and Stevie played harmonica on one of the songs. This is for Arm and You now. And uh, I, I was Eddie Kramer's assistant. Eddie wasn't around. And Peter had mentioned it in his memoir, Do You Feel Like We Do? Or I guess that's what it's called. <laughs> and uh, that was a nice thing that he mentioned. I, I'll tell you the truth, man. He was, he was one of the sweetest guys I ever met. And... Uh, that's really coming from criminally mind. underrated as one of the all-time great guitar players all-time great guitar. You all can't, it, time great guitar but that's why i brought up the movie just because i'm like a, like talk about a left turn you know yeah the yeah it, it really you know it really was that was a poor decision uh on his part and, and you I know don't what i think it was so much on his part i think it was the fact that he just was such a nice guy it was hard for him to say no Okay, you know and, there was whispers that Kiss was asked to do the the uh, the Aerosmith part for yeah. the villain band. Yes, um, yes, and uh, and you know they didn't do it. And again, to me, that's like the only three minutes good of that whole movie. I, I dig the Aerosmith scene. I like um, the soundtrack. I, I mean, uh, the soundtrack, the Sgt. Pepper soundtrack, had Earth, Wind, and Fire. At, they had the uh, come together of the Aerosmith. On there, I, I actually like that version better. Yeah, than I, I think that classic, too. I like that version better than the Beatles. I remember having a lunch with uh, George Martin a couple of times and Peter Frampton in, in the backyard of the house. And uh, musically seeing what George was trying to do and envision, and then seeing optically what RSO was doing with the movie, it just didn't connect to me. It was you know, terrible. It was terrible. I've never, it even, was, I've never been able to even sit through it. I've tried numerous times. It's, it's unwatchable. It was terrible. I never said it was terrible. I, I, I would never want to hurt anybody's feelings on their dream. I don't know if it was Peter's dream. It was more DeAnthony's dream, I think, than anything. Or, or people who, you know, when you make, when, when you're off at maybe a million or two million dollars, I don't think he needed the money. He just was such a nice guy that he couldn't say no. That's that's what I believe. And he maybe didn't think it through. He just got off tour. Uh, things were a little hectic with women and the whole thing. And maybe he wasn't thinking too clearly. Because, uh, I mean, it wasn't a mistake. Um, I don't know. He still had a great recording career. And I love everything he did after the live album. And after I'm you, I love, I love everything he's ever done. I, I really do. And uh you just, you know, you, you take a chance and you, you sometimes you strike out. Sometimes you, you, you know, you get a hit and it's, yep. uh, that's just a nature of the beast. You know, Frank, Frankie, you, you, you worked on two seminal live albums, Frampton and Kiss. Yeah. What, and, and, and as Kiss fans, we now know, looking back, a lot of Kiss Alive was, redone in the studio overdubs yes. punching you know 
What's the challenge of recording, mixing, producing a live album in that sense? That that fans may not understand. It's not just as easy as hit the record button in a huh. an arena and record it, because you know, as 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 has been illustrated in the case of Kiss, you know, they've got pyro going off, and that drowns out guitars and my and vocals and you know all musicians might have strings that break in concert and they might they may not be singing directly into the mic they may be off to the side a little well what are the challenges well the challenges for a live album i believe are getting first of all you may have more than one performance of a song through different tapes and different places like the, the i'll go back to the live uh the frampton thing we, they were they recorded in, in two different places. So you pick the best of each place and you try to make it all match and sound as one complete thing. So you may have to take the audience and bring it up a little bit with digital delays or loop it as in the case of Kiss, how to extend it and expand it. And you had, uh, you know, like in the case of Kiss, there were there were guitar overdubs. That's, and, and um, I don't recall um, any background vocal overdose, but I, I, I recall uh, Bob Bob Kulik doing a lot of overdubs on the guitar. Bob Kulik? I'm alive? I guess alive? Bob, not not Bruce, Bob. I I find I I, I will I look, I'm gonna respectfully disagree because he came in and did Kiss Alive two dubs. Hey man, I was there. I'm telling you, I'm giving you, I'm giving you full props. I'm just saying, <laughs> I'd never heard that story. I'm not, I'm not endorsing. And not only this, I'm going to give you another little piece. This didn't give guys like me, they didn't give credit. Okay, I don't even think they gave assistance credit. They they get Eddie Kramer and this. I don't think they mentioned. Maybe later on they did. I'm not sure about the live thing. I don't think I have a credit on that. But I worked on that. And I work for credits, and that's that's my my thing, you know. If there was money there, but I wasn't getting rich off of it. But credit-wise, allows me to do things like this. Years right. later, you can so, put it on yeah. your resume and said, and yeah, prove man. that I did. I was part of this. I mean, I'm not I'm not bragging, but I'll give you for example between the three albums, Patty Smith Horses, which just got inducted into the Grammy Hall of Fame. Frampton comes alive, and I'm in you. My name's on 30 million albums right there. That's mm. awesome. Yeah, we're just right there in those three records. That's amazing. And critically acclaimed on each record. And I'm in you, not so much, but it was a number two record. It oh, sold, it was huge. Are you it was kidding? Huge, like that whole five million copies. We had a very successful tour. Um, hey, hey, whose idea was it to do the Stevie Wonder cover on that? Uh, Peter's. Okay, yeah, because I yeah. love that version. Yeah, That's a yeah. Science Sealed Delivered, I think, was the second single. It was I'm in You, Science Sealed Delivered, and Tried to Love. That was the th- three singles. Tried to Love didn't do that much, but I'm in You, the I think. The first two, yeah. First two did, did, did great. Uh, hey, I, since you were talking about doing drop-ins on Kiss Alive, were you there when uh, they added the bombs at the end of Black Diamond? No, no. Because there's there. a, yeah, because Gene has mentioned that because, you know, they have this, the, the stage was well they didn't sound very it almost sounded like poof 
you know, when they right. recorded it, they wanted more of a military sort of. Uh, yeah, and I was going to pick your brain for that. Yeah, I wasn't there for that. But if if the sound was on the tape, we can enhance it with bottom end and we could bring it up with levels, uh, bring up the levels of if they were on their own tracks, if they were in, if it was something that you couldn't get away with, you just had to deal with it, you know. But if it was something that they were on their own tracks, possibly you can enhance it. You could bring it up. You could lower the low end on it. So it gives you a hitch in the chest. You, you know what I mean? I mixed the Frampton uh, live show uh, for the North American tour. And I was the same age as the fans. I was just a little, I was just a little older than them. So I knew what I wanted to hear at a concert and I gave it to them that way. And it's almost the philosophy Gene Simmons has. Give them something they didn't have when they came in. A hearing problem. <laughs> right. Fra Fra Frankie, Frankie I, 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 know, I, I know we're going, I'm asking you to remember way back here. And again, all of our memories aren't the best. But on Kiss Alive in relationship to Bob Kulik, mm -hmm. do you recall specifically in what songs he might have come in? on Kiss Alive? Was it every song or was it just no, it a few spot song. moments? It's spot moments, yeah, where they needed it. Uh, Eddie and Gene and Paul would figure out where they needed it. And, and actually, Bob Gulick played on so many people's records. He was he was a fixture at Electric Lady. I mean, he was the go-to guy at that He was part. the go-to guy for doing guitars? Oh, yeah. Bob, yeah. Definitely the go-to guy. And uh, it wasn't on every song. And it, it was here and there. It's where, where you needed it. And uh, but you felt you needed, and Eddie Kramer, of course, was the great Eddie Kramer. He knew where it should be. He knew what needed to be punched and it needed to be. So now, he, now, do in in relation to this, do you know? Did they use Bob because Ace wasn't available? Ace wasn't doing it as great as as Eddie wanted it to sound. Why did they go to Bob? Do you remember? In my opinion. They went to Bob because he had what it took to do. He was a seasoned studio guitar player and he knew what to do and when to do it. In my opinion, I didn't know him too much of Ace. Okay. Um, Bob just added, he didn't overplay. He, uh, he added what was needed and what was requested of him. And that was, that was a great quality to not overdo anything, just to insert yourself in somebody else's project. You know, it wasn't about you. It wasn't about Bob. So he understood, right. Bob understood that. And that's why people used him. And he was used, I, I don't know how, about other live albums, but he was used on a lot of people's records. He played on a lot of people's Well, records. I mean, there, there's, there's no doubt Kiss has used him many times. Yeah. This is just the first time we've heard his name Alive. in reference to Kiss Alive. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. I don't know how many people know that, but yeah, it, it, he knew what to do. It wasn't about him. He didn't want to be the star, quote unquote. He added what needed to be added vis-a-vis -vis the direction of Eddie Kramer, Gene, Paul, whoever, you know, was sitting there producing that particular song at the time. Was he, he the, was he the only um, non-band musician on Kiss Alive that you can recall? Yes. Yeah, he was the only one that I could recall. Absolutely. Did you ever do any work with Blondie? No, I never did any work with Blondie. Never. 
What any other New York acts? Uh, New York Dolls, Ramones, Talking, Talking Heads. Heads. No, actually, no, none of the none of them. Um, okay. I would say the Pat after Patty Smith horses. Um, I was kind of getting into my own thing. I was getting into more of. A, I moved on to. I don't know if it was right after that, but I eventually moved on to the Hit Factory, and mute the genres have changed. And I was working with a guy called Sandy Linzer, and he was doing bands like Odyssey, Native New Yorker, uh, Corey Day. We were doing more of a, a dance kind of thing, just like things change. And uh, I, me personally, I never got the punk thing. I mean, I worked on a lot of fusion stuff, Lenny White. Um, uh, Larry nice. uh I did an Al Demiola album, Land of the Midnight Sun. I worked on the, the album after that as well, Elegant Gypsy. Um, I just never got the punk thing. I never got it. Um, they would come in, people would come in, and um, I just never got that whole thing. I never got the CBGB's thing. I thought the place was a dump. I thought it, yeah. already, <laughs> I thought it already burned down before it almost burned down. That's how it looked. I mean, I mean, never got the punk thing. And um, the closest thing, they call Patti Smith the godmother of punk. That's really not true in my opinion. But people can call it anything they want. But uh, Well, I, I get it with Patti Smith. I mean, she was kind of edgy at times. Yeah. John um, Cale. Without John Cale from the Velvet Underground, there, that record wouldn't be like it was. He really added this unusual aspect to that album if anyone's familiar with it it's a, yeah i like that album a lot actually. yeah it's a very cool album i was surprised to see that it it's it it didn't sell in the millions but it's certainly being played in the millions right now i, I can tell you that i, I think it, i think at the time it was more infamous than famous yes she had a, also to a lot of people don't know this i mean i I'm a, I'm a big Bloister Cult fan, and Patti Smith wrote a lot of lyrics. Well, I think I think Fred, her husband, was in Bloister Cult. Patti's husband, or he played with Bloister Cult, or uh, he was he was in the. I band. think he did some some writing. I don't think he. I think, was okay, there. maybe he did some writing, but there was that Bloister Cult Patti Smith connection vis-a-vis his her husband at the time. I forgot his name. Fred Sonic when, Smith? I think so. I think so. Yeah, I think it was Fred Sonic Smith. I really do. Yeah. When when you were done with Kiss Alive and Frampton Comes Alive and those albums exploded in the way they did, would you sit back in the studio and just go, wow, on, you know, we had... we. We thought it was a good album. We had no idea it was that level of an album. I mean, you know, those those two albums are always in somebody's list of the greatest live albums ever. Yeah, I mean, I had no conception of that. I, I just, like you said, like we mentioned earlier, you got a job to do, you go in and do it, and you... You're exhausted when you do it. You don't go home and listen to the radio. I didn't know until like a year out that Frampton Comes Alive was big. Or even Kiss. I, I just didn't pay attention to that because I was doing music 12 hours a day. I needed a rest. 
My did you? Right. The, la- the last thing you do coming out of a studio is go home and listen to music. Yeah, right? no, no, right. nothing about music. Yeah, that's the first thing you want to be there. I, you know, so I really didn't know. I really Were you ever in a position with other artists, whoever it might have been, that found out that you did some work with Kiss and were curious and asked questions? Or were they usually dismissive of the band? Because we have this discussion a lot that for a very long time they did not get equal favor in their peers. What, 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 what did the peers think of KISS? Well, I think there was some jealousy there in some ways of, of lesser bands. Uh, I think there were people who wanted to copy their formula. I don't, I don't think in the beginning they got uh, the, uh, the credit or the appreciation or whatever it was that they got later on. When you look at their body of work, you know, when uh, you look at the entire thing together and you see after you've seen the shows. But but I don't think that the, the their peers took them seriously at the time. Yeah. Be more like a flash in the pan, at least from my my perspective. Well, but, yeah, because like here in Minneapolis, we've got a, we've talked about this before. Also, KQRS, which is a classic rock radio station, one of the biggest in the country. And they put. Aerosmith, the Eagles, um, Led Zeppelin, yeah. a bunch of these bands together, and Kiss is always excluded from that list because they're always considered by so many to be not real. And I've never really understood that because, like Mark always says, if you're not a Kiss fan, it's because you've never listened to them. And I believe there's a certain degree of truth to that because they have so many different types of songs. There'd be yeah. some that maybe wouldn't like some of the heavier stuff, but they would certainly like a few of the ballads. Yeah. And it just seems like if you really break it down and you get rid of everything that every band has to offer than just the songs and you put it song for song, I still listen to more Kiss records than I do a lot of other bands that I grew up with. And there's a reason I like the songs. That's right. They're great songs. And, yeah. and I, I'll, I'll be honest with you. One of my favorite Kiss records is the one that Bob Ezrin did um, with uh, Destroyer. Yeah. My, one of my favorites, not, not only because of the sound, it was, a, it, it was just different and it had an energy that I didn't hear before previous to that. I liked, uh, I like the record with Lick It Up. I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, I liked a lot of, I, I'm with you guys. I like their records. I don't know how serious anybody took it, but for me, all of it was serious because there was reputation attached to it for yep. me, to anything I was involved in. And there was paycheck involved in it too. Yeah. So, well, I, did you? Did you ever run into people that when they found out that you worked at Electric Lady and that you did some work with Kiss that were Kiss fans going, oh, my God, what do they look like? That kind of stuff. Did you ever have any of that? The reason I asked is because that was the big thing when we were kids. No one knew what they looked like. And here you are working with them on a regular basis. And you'd be the only guy probably that would know who they are if you passed them on the street. Yeah, well, I've never really no one ever really asked me about what they look like, because I'll be honest with you. When I was done with a lot of things, I. I had an apartment at the time in Manhattan, so I'd either go home or you had mentioned fanboy. If I knew somebody was a fan of anything, I'd run away. Okay, that was just me. That that was my personality. I'm not not that yeah, I'm not talk about person. It. Yeah, I'm not imper- not that I'm not personable, but I just didn't want to go that way. I just no, I, I understand. I yeah. get it. 
I never was approached for that particular reason. Someone asked me, well, what do they look like uh, with no makeup or how are they or this and that. Um, I, I just never, I never experienced that. And then of course the studios are very protective yeah. and they weren't letting anybody in. Okay. Right. Uh, especially electric lady had a great security system, cameras, the whole thing. So, um, you know, I, I, I kind of never really, no one ever really asked me about the particulars of how Kiss looked or what they really were like on or that situation. I never had the chance to really discuss it uh, person to person with any one individual or group of individuals. But I would say Gene uh, and Paul were the, like, I, I work with the Stones on, we did, um, not, the Miss You album. Chris Kimsey was Ooh, an engineer. You worked, you worked on, on Some Girls? Yeah, Some Girls, yeah. We mixed, we mixed <laughs> Tommy and one okay. Tommy Mike. Okay, Tom, Tom, Tommy's, go, Tommy's going fanboy now. Yes, just so I you love know. the Rolling Stones. No, but, but, let me get this straight. I didn't get a credit on it, but I remixed Beast of Burden and okay. Shattered at Electric Lady. Oh, cool. And, yeah, and that was... Uh, and, and, and nor should I have gotten a credit on it because... It wasn't that long, but the yeah. interesting story was um, Ethan Richards had an immigration problem where he had uh, some kind of drug problem or whatever. We had a case going on either in America or in Europe. So they were not allowed. When Chris approached me, because we had did the, the I'm and you and the live album, Chris, he, he goes to me, listen, I want you to come and we're going to do a mix, but nobody had, no one could know about it. Nobody could know. And I, I swear to God, they came in. Everybody liked to do blow back then. Okay, let's let's yeah. let's tell the kids what it was like. They came in with their own doctor who held pharmaceutical cocaine in their bag. He had a medical bag, and if the guys wanted a line or whatever, he would put it out, take it out of the Merck brown cocaine yeah. hydrochloride bottle, and he'd put out the lines for you, and he held it. So if anybody came in, which no one would, I mean, they, they yeah. were just very paranoid at the time because they had a lot of issues with immigration, police, this and that, and drug busts. And um, that's how it had to be. But it was, uh, it was interesting. It was very, very, very interesting kind do of you, thing. Do you remember the first time you heard Shattered? What your Because that's one of my favorite Rolling Stone songs. This is my is favorite it? record. And I just thought that was so cool the first time I heard that as a kid. So I was just wondering what that must have been so cool to go, okay, here's a new Rolling Stones song that's so cool and I'm working on it. Well, Beast of Burden's great too. Don't get me wrong, the whole record's excellent. Yeah, it's a great record. Um, well, I, I, I'll tell you at that point, I, I don't know if I was like blown away like you would be as a kid. Okay. It was, uh, it was great to work with Stones. I mean, I'll tell you one thing, Pete, coolest guy personable Mick was a little standoffish and but at the same time he crossed all his T's and dotted all his I's and he was like on the money okay you know as a producer okay. let alone being you know the front guy for the Rolling Stones I mean he was on the money and uh, you know I I like I like the whole album myself. I really enjoyed the album. What is what are they using to get that guitar tone and sound at the beginning of Shattered? That nothing sounds like that. That is got that is like one of the most unique sounding it guitar sounds, tones. 
I mean, the tracks were already recorded when they got to us. We were just mixing and overdubbing. So I would probably say it sounds like some kind of reverb. Reverb. Yeah, reverb on the Yeah, but there's more to it. I, I've always just that that guitar, it's funny, Tommy, because that brought me back when I was a kid hearing it on the radio for the first time. I'm like, nothing sounds like this. Blah, 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 blah. You know yeah, what I mean? it's, just, it's a low yeah. tone and it's almost like, um, I don't know, I would have to say uh, maybe uh, the reverb settings on the amp itself, getting the sound from the amp. Nothing before to... or after has sounded I say like before. They can't even do it live like that. That 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 sound is just insane cool. I love that. I, no, I honestly think when I first heard those tapes, the, the particular that sound was on tape, so they had to get it from the app, in my opinion. Right. Makes sense. Makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. Wow, what a life you've lived. Yeah, uh, it was you know? it was interesting. I mean, listen, I I pursued recording because I kind of knew like in Catholic school that I wanted to be in the music business. I I just knew. And I left high school. I later uh, continued. I went on to college many, many, many decades later. And uh, But I knew what I wanted to do really early on. And that was due to the fact that you could read album covers and see who the guys were, see who Jack Douglas was. I got to meet Jack Douglas. I got to meet all these people because I would read the album covers. I was that fanboy, you know. And that's how I uh, I just kind of knew where I wanted to go early on. I, I you know, in... In, in, in this day and age, obviously, everything is just so transparent. It's hard to, it's hard to um, be protective of stuff. But back then, were producers and engineers and assistant engineers, were you more protective of your tricks of the trade as to, you know, to Mark's question, how that sound was captured? Is sometimes a lot of that stuff, it's my secret sauce. I don't want everybody to know how to make that sound. I want them to only come to me if they want that sound. Well, yeah, I would say, I would say on a mixing level, there's certain things I wanted to know how this particular engineer and producer got that. Like there's certain little tricks that you, oh, wow, so-and-so is doing this. I want to hear that. Like I'll give you, for instance, on the Aerosmith Rocks album, Ooh, took, uh, they took an oscillator a tone oscillator, and they set it at 60 cycles and they keyed it to the bass drum and it would give a low end that the bass drum didn't have. So it was little tricks like that. There's little things like taking the bass drum, bass and snare, putting it through a compressor, bringing it back through the board and putting it right up the middle. So you have a constant, a constant thing right in the middle of the record. And that was a trick. There, there, there were little tricks with limiters and compressors that you would do. That was one of my favorite little tricks that uh, I happened to pick up from Jack Douglas, who you don't know I picked it up, but I did. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was my best friend that I grew up with, worked with. But uh, little things like that, yeah. What, what, what amps people were using, um, you know, thing, things of that nature, sure. I mean, New York had studios from... 42nd Street all the way to 57th Street, from 8th Avenue to 11th Avenue, had film studios, had record every block had three studios on it. Uh, I mean, yeah, especially on the Upper West Side. Uh, uh, you know, it was it, it was such a dynamic, creative place that you would hear things people doing this or doing that, or 
going out and using a bigger room. How did they get that drum sound? Well, they went out and they did it. They got it on tape from the room. You know, it was like, it was not the age of a lot of unlimited outboard equipment on Pro Tools drop down. You know, uh, it wasn't a plug. You, you just didn't go out and buy a plug in to recreate no, it. No, you had to you had to create it and use your mind. You truly, you truly had to be basically an an audio chef. You had to know how to mix things together to create something different as an end result. Exactly, exactly, and 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 that's you know that's something that like I said we don't have we didn't there was no in the box recording okay as they call it today you work in the box everything's dropped down you work to me that. I have Pro Tools. I have all that shit. It, 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 it just, you get too, for me, I get too wrapped up in the process of looking how to do this, finding this effect, that. The screen fatigues me. I can't work in the box. Or up to me, I would get the sounds I want to get in the room, bring them forward into the control room, and then perhaps work in the box but not totally i mean that now they're calling assistant engineers pro tools operators i don't i wouldn't want to be called that you know do you guys know anything about how people are doing oh, stuff today oh oh yeah yeah i mean it's it's you know it's a lost it's a lost craft it's a lost, it's a lost art. i tell people don't be a slave to the box i mean listen you, you 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 i mean so many people go out and buy a new you know, MacBook, it comes with GarageBand and they think they've got a studio. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and they spend a lot of time uh, burning their eyes out and experimenting with sounds they shouldn't even go for because you have so many options that after a while you get lost. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But our thing was always to try to create something out in the room with picking amps, um, Picking snare drums, you could take a week to get drum sounds by using different drums, tuning them, uh, different thing. Okay, that snare work. Let's try this. Try the piccolo snare. Let's try this one, that one, and 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 that was the process. Uh, you know, okay, we don't like the way that amp sounds. Let's try the Fender. Let's let's not use the Marshall. Let's use a higher uh, output amp at lower volumes. You know, different things. They try to you know, get the most out of it. Like, like a, for instance, is, is the Led Zeppelin record, Led Zeppelin one. And the, if you listen to the guitars, they sound killer, but they're not like all over the place. They're very in there perfectly. And that's, that's what we're trying to treat, heaviness without overwhelming volume and control. And that's, and you bring that control to the control room and you control it. Is it is you know, it true that it's hard to mic a, an acoustic guitar sometimes in well, comparison to electric? Um, it, it depends on the player, really. I think. Okay. I mean, it's, it's not necessarily hard to mic it. it. It depends on how how the player plays. You would, you know, I mean, you want to get it, you know, at in on the hole in the guitar. Okay, of course it's right there. Then you might do it up, up on the neck. And then the guitar, acoustic guitar may have a direct out. You might want to do all three. Okay. So you, you know, you work, you know, you give yourself different options. Sometimes you may want to take, we used to do things where if we had a snare drum, uh back back in the day, we didn't have a lot of effects. We didn't have a lot of options. We had digital delays, we had phaser. It's very limited. Tape delay, okay, real tape delay. 
And, and that, that was it. Real phasing, real, like, I don't know if you guys go back to uh, the, the small faces, Ichiku Park, as mm-hmm. one of the first, yeah. uh, first records with real drum phasing where we used tape machines. Yeah, that was, that was a great thing. I have um, to listen to that again. Yeah, I mean, Quiet Riot did a co- cool cover of that too. If you get a, did they? Yeah, Ichiku Park. Yeah, Ichiku Park. Yeah, really. Yeah, I love that I didn't song. Know that. Me too. Yeah. I love it too. Love it. Love it to death. Yeah, I love um, those sixties. Yeah. You try to you, you try to get the uh, the sounds with what you got. Like for instance, we take if I needed to get a better snare drum sound back in the day, I would literally take a speaker, bring it out into the room, okay. Take the snare drum, put it on top of a speaker. Picture a regular speaker, like a hi-fi speaker. Put the snare drum on top of the speaker, send out the snare drum that's in the control room to that speaker, and then mic that speaker and tune that drum. So, and then you mic, you mic the room. You get the room sound. That's how you got a big snare sound, because you were getting the snare to hit another snare through a speaker. Things like that. Interesting. Doing, wow. doing vocals through a Leslie, okay? Through a Leslie Yeah, you know what I mean? Leslie ca- cabinet, the the from oh. your Leslie organ, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah, an right. organ cabinet. We'd run yeah. vocals through there and everything, backgrounds. I mean, you know, th- trying things like that. Like I said, thing with speakers on top of the, the the snare drum on top of the speaker. That kind of thing. Those those just little little tricks that you do, you learn along the way. Everybody learns from each other. Fra- Frankie, as 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 we wrap up here, mm-hmm. was there ever a project that you weren't assigned that you wish you had gotten? Hmm. <laughs> I don't think so. I mean, I kind of whatever I got. I put a hundred percent into, and uh, I don't think I ever said why. Well, I, I, I mean, after the albums I worked on, where am I going from there? I mean, well, like, I mean, yeah, I mean, part of it is like, really, I mean, you did, you did two amazingly huge live albums. It's not like you missed out on anything. I didn't miss but, out on anything. But, but you know, as as you talked about how projects would come in and the girl upstairs would assign them and stuff like that. Were there ever any projects that came through that you saw being done and you're like, God, I wish I would have gotten that one? Well, the only maybe maybe one, maybe one. It was when um, Led Zeppelin came in and they were mixing the song Remains the Same, the movie, the, the soundtrack for the movie. And that might have been the one because I I would like it'd be four o'clock in the morning, I'd be speaking with Robert Plant in the hallway, you know, of Electric Lady. Um that was kind of the one I wish I would have gotten at least one Led Zeppelin thing because they were like one of my favorite bands. But the weird part is Robert was an amazing person, I thought, because he was so approachable. And uh, we spoke for like an hour, hour and a half, four o'clock in the morning. And I never saw Jimmy Page, ever. The guy was like mysterious. They would cover the, the window in the studio with like paper. You couldn't, you like... We were been told not to even look his way or some shit like that. I, I mean, it was kind of weird. Mm. But that was maybe just them feeding into his mystical whatever thing going on. But he wasn't, I mean, I didn't see him once. Then they were there for like a month. Robert Plant, I see all the time. It was just Jimmy and Robert and Eddie Kramer. 
but uh, that that would be probably about the only one. I mean, well, I mean, you know that that that's a good one to wish you could have done. You know, yeah. a Led Zeppelin album. <laughs> yeah. Did you ever did you ever see the movie? The song remains the same. Yeah, lots of time. Okay, Love did you ever see when they come off the plane and they're going over the bridge and they're coming into the city and that whole thing? That was exactly the Frampton thing. The exact thing how we approached doing three nights at the garden. You know, coming back to New York was a big deal for us. We did three nights at the garden and we had R2D2 on stage with Frampton at the time. Was, oh, yeah. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I got to tell you. Um, Frankie, this has been fascinating. I mean, the, the stories beyond Kiss are incredible. The the little what we call minutia you just dropped about Bob Kulik on Kiss Alive. Yes. Completely news to us, which means it's probably completely new to every Kiss fan out there. Oh really? I, I, yeah. I was not aware of that. I, you know, no, I, thought- I, I mean we I, again we know Bob's involvement in Kiss Alive too. Right. Um and and a lot of stuff from that point going forward. And we also know that Bob initially auditioned to be in kiss only to be beaten by ACE, but we weren't aware that he was involved back in 75 to the beginning. Yeah. You're the first person we've spoken to that goes this far back. Yeah. So it's exciting as hell. It's absolutely true. And if it's a revelation to KISS fans, I hope I enlightened you guys with some of it because it was exciting for me too. I mean, I I love the way Bob played. Well, you know, you know what KISS fans are gonna do now is they're going to some of them are gonna go out and listen to Kiss Alive mm-hmm. and dissect and try and figure out who's who what's Bob, who's which which is Bob Kulik and which right. is Ace. Mm-hmm. Well, good luck with that, kids. <laughs> <laughs> I'm guessing if anything, it's going to be a punch in for a guitar chord, you know. Yeah, yeah. it's not, it's not like or it's, it's not going to be a solo. No, it's going to be a pad or something. It's not, yes, it's just exactly, going to take a lead. It's going to be a chord yeah. behind the but yeah, he's yeah. still. He's still on it, Mark. He's still there. We yeah. didn't know that. We did not even know. No, no, know no, no. That. But my point is if you're going to sit and listen to Kiss Live, okay, that I think it's. Yeah, that I don't think you're going to find it. No, no. You're no, not going to, no. because that's the whole idea of it to not make it so obvious. Exactly. So you don't know. There'll be people who heaven. swear they know the difference. Yeah, I, it, they would never know the difference. No. I, 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 don't, I don't think they would care, but you say they do. So I hope somebody well, finds something. Oh, trust Frank, me. Frank, Frank, Frankie, do you have any paperwork that you saved or buried anywhere that might say, oh, Bob was here on this day or was working on these tracks? Nah, nah, I didn't. I wasn't. Nah. The only things I have left are who I was being sued by and uh, <laughs> tax returns. <laughs> I mean, Either I was way, working, money's going I out of your pockets. I was being paid by the Jimi Hendrix estate, which if you know anything about that, the manager for Jimi was Michael Jeffries. And they accused Michael Jeffries of killing Jimi. Okay. So there was a whole thing behind that. Oh, we all got called down to the tax agencies. And Michael, Michael will back me up on this because he got called down as well. And we all we all got called down because they suspected that he, Jimmy was killed, and there was drugs being uh, 
paying for studio time, this and that. Each one of us got called down to the feds to have an interview. I did too. Michael did. And um, um, my point is, what was my point? I don't even know my point. That. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there was there was a whole bunch going on. I don't have any documentation. I wish I had a camera on tour when I went out with Peter Frampton. I wish I bought a camera. So many great memories. So many girls I missed. Uh, you know, it was like, it was great. I just wish I had a camera. I wasn't, I wasn't, a, like I said, I wasn't a fan of anything. I was just in it. Yeah, it was a job. It. Yeah, it was a job. It was a job right. that I loved. And when I knew I knew that job, I happened to be lucky enough to get a two album deal on Epic. Which is awesome. Writer, singer. That's okay. amazing. By the way, we're, we're going to, we're going to check it out. I did, uh, I did a little uh, investigate and that's on YouTube. Yeah, it's on oh, we're gonna go find that album. It's yep. on Reverb Nation YouTube. Yeah, uh, good. Place. I had a, I had a wonderful experience in the music business. Uh, Frankie, do you want? Is there anywhere you want fans to go visit? Do you have? Do you want to direct fans to do anything to follow you to connect with you, or do you I just want to just, share your stories? I just want to share my story. I I've kind of like I adulation and all that I, and I wasn't that kind of thing I didn't go into this for that but okay. if anybody wants to look up Frankie Eldorado I'm on Reverb Nation I'm number three this week in New York and I'm number 48 global nice what about when, when, when's, when's Frankie Eldorado got a new album coming out never <laughs> <laughs> I'm almost 70 years old where am I going I live here with my girlfriend. We love each other. We have the greatest time. And that's that's all you that's can it. ask. It's a wrap, baby. The party yep. can't last forever. Frankie, yeah. thank you so much for Absolutely. for sharing your stories thank and you. your memories. Thank you. This was uh, thank you. We guys. we we live for this sort of stuff, not just for the kiss minutia, but for all stuff. the other the other music stories you could share with us because we grew up on this stuff, and Absolutely. it's and it and it makes it so much more special and the, the, to learn the, this stuff about the, the music. thing is also another thing anybody can google frankie eldorado or frankie d augusta without the apostrophe d-a-u-g-u-s-t-a and it's all there on google it's all there on youtube it's okay it's in some books or wherever it is and i've done other interviews with other people about what we're talking about not not kiss as much but a generalization of other bands so it's it's all there but I'm not looking for anything. I'm very, Frankie, very cool. thank, thank you, thank, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. This was thank you. Guys. This was so um, so much fun. So much. Fun. Thank you, Mike. I appreciate it. I really do. Anytime. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Three Sides of the Coin. I'm going to say right off the bat here, you have to listen to this interview. A bit, littlest bit of minutia was revealed that is literally head exploding mind-blowing nobody i bet listening has ever heard this before and it comes straight from an assistant engineer who was in the studio at electric lady it's fucking incredible um tommy Give us one or two quick comments because our new episode about about the, the the announcement of the final two shows is getting a lot of comments on YouTube. Yeah, we've got so many to um, 
go over. And I would say, let's say, um, you see, God. I gave you a couple hours head heads yeah, up I know on I had this. It, no, I had it. And then I set it aside just because I'm like, okay, this interview is running long. We're never going. Because what I wanted to do is I wanted to read Mike Scott's, but it's very long. So we just don't have the time for that. Um, let's just do a big fan. Long, uh, long interview, three full songs, great demographics, and then long-term views on YouTube. Win-win. And I'm not sure what he's talking about. I'm assuming he's talking about the Howard Stern. Stern. Stern And he's right, you know. And um, Mark Cole, drum teacher, said if they were going to do something with past members, and I don't really think they would, I think it would be more of a one-off or a festival scenario. scenario. They need much more time to plan. Pulling off something like that while you're already on tour might be a kind of tough. Good point. And and, and, and maybe to that point, Maybe they'll do something with past members when it is truly the last show of Kiss ever. Yeah. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, which these are the last shows of the tour. Right. So there you go. But thank you guys, everyone, for all of your wonderful comments. We very much appreciate it. And uh, hats off to everybody out there who got their tickets to the Madison Square Garden shows. Mm-hmm. Um, another another sounds, tickets. Sounds like Ticketmaster kind of fucking blew up on a lot of people. So a lot of people that were like, "I'm number two thousand in queue to get a ticket." And why would they do? That's that's a that's a subject for not. I we've got to finish this. So that's yeah, a subject yeah. that I want to cover coming up soon. So 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 this week, I I just hinted it a little as we started this. We are joined by an assistant engineer who worked on the debut Kiss album, worked on Dress to Kill, who worked on Kiss Alive, amongst other small albums like Frampton Comes Alive. And wasn't there a Rolling Rolling Stone album? Some girls. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, a Patti Smith album. Uh, something like that. I don't know. I mean, I'm not a, I'm not a fan of hers, but respect. I mean, it was a influential album. So anyway, um, Frankie D'Augusta joins us and we've got stories about John Lennon. We've got stories about Peter Frampton. We've got stories about the Rolling Stones. Kiss. Kiss. <laughs> um, Bob Kulik. I'm just going to leave that there. There's a a mind-blowing story about Bob Kulik. you got to listen to this because people are going to be like, no way. Yahweh, this guy was there. He knows. Um, you got to let this roll. We'll see you at the end. You have something to say? Leave a voicemail or send us a text message. Call 320-515 for three sides of the coin. Provided by LarryDavisVoice.com and by JessicaMarsVoice.com. That's Mars with a Z.